Blog Talk Radio. Happy New Year from Backroom Politics. This week, we take a look back at the year that was, 2014, and the big political stories from Ferguson to midterms, from XL Pipeline to Obamacare. We What got our attention in 2014? Also, what can we expect out of Washington in the upcoming 2015? And the 114th Congress, can Capitol Hill and the White House break the gridlock? What will be the big political stories of 2015? That and tell me a story this week on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. Good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It is Tuesday, the first Tuesday in 2015 for us, and it is time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do for the first time in 2015, as they do for the past four years. To my left, he is the former eight-term member of Congress, representing Washington's second congressional district. He is Congressman Al Swift. Hello, Congressman. Hello, Justin. Happy Glad New to be Year. Back after <clears throat> after three weeks of hiatus, it's yeah. been good. And to my eleven o'clock across the table, he is the former floor chief for then Congressman Gerald Ford and the former vice president of government affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation. He is the Honorable Bob Hines. Happy New Year, Bob. Happy New Year to you too, Justin. And to my twelve o'clock across the table, she is the former. General Counsel to the Homeland Security Committee under Benny Thompson and former General Counsel to the Maritime Administration. She's Obama appointee, Denise Krepp. Hello, Denise. Hello, Justin. And I have a new title. I just got sworn in today. Yay! Area New Commissioner, Denise Krepp. And to my one o'clock, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Affairs who served under last count four presidents. Longtime Senate staffer and Washington Insider and the chairman of the Alan Moore Caucus. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello. Hello. Please join my caucus. <laughs> we we don't want to talk about your caucus. Anyway, to my to my right, ironically, he is longtime Democratic political operative and Bar certified attorney in the great state of New York and the District of Columbia. He is Dan Lipner Esquire. Hello, Daniel. Happy New Year. Hello, Justin. Happy New Year. And I'm shocked I didn't get one vote for speaker again this year. <laughs> you know, we're all surprised by that. Apparently, everybody inside the Beltway got nominated for speaker this year. Which brings us to our our first hour. We're going to talk about what we thought the year in politics looked like in 2014. We've got a lot to talk about 2015 coming up in our next hour, but uh we always like starting off the year or closing out the year with uh, kind of a look back at 2014 because it's usually a good blueprint for what we could possibly expect in the upcoming year. But, you know, with everything that went on, we had a bunch of big news stories coming out in uh, 2014 with, between 
what happened in, in the situation in Ferguson and police brutality, which uh, has, continues to garner our attention. Uh, we had the midterm elections, which saw the Republicans gain control of both chambers of Congress. Uh, we saw the XL pipeline, which continues to be a talking point here in the Beltway. Uh, so many stories. Uh, but I'm going to open it up. I'm going to start off with Alan Moore. Alan, when, when we look back at 2014, if you were to pick one big story, what was the biggest story in your mind? Well, you know, the biggest story for the purposes of this show, I think, is is the election results because we were tracking it, watching it happen, a little bit of uncertainty <coughs> with what was going on, and then a, a, a very big victory for uh, for Republicans, uh, a victory that occurred, interestingly, uh, in the midst of, of a recovery economically that's beginning to pick up some some speed. It's got lots of uh, lots of challenges in it. It is not a solid, powerful, uh, dynamic force. But gosh, uh, for the first time since 2008, uh, the consumer confidence is, has flipped ever so slightly to positive, and that, that this is the first. So, notwithstanding some of those improvements, uh, it was a very big election for the Republicans, and and it'll it'll have uh, who knows what kinds of implications going forward. But but Dan Lipner, when 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 we when we look at the midterms and we look at some of the dynamics that were occurring, particularly around the midterms that happened, uh, Alan points out that there there has been. Uh, one could argue, but a lot of even Republicans are saying, look, we're starting to see a slight uptick in the economic status here in the United States. The president as being the chief executive hasn't gotten a lot of credit for that. Is that unfair? I mean, we look back at 2014, he didn't get a lot of kudos. Uh, the answer is yes, it's unfair, but also self-inflicted. The Obama communications office is terrible. Uh, there's no way fans about that. The fact that Wall Street was ha having record highs in spite of all of the, the negative work by the Republican Congress deflecting uh, the president's agenda, in addition to the gas prices being at new lows that we haven't seen in many, many years, and the economy and overall you know, uh, improvement of the economy, including for regular workers, uh, the fact that the White House was unable to talk about that, yeah, it's unfair, but it's also somewhat self-induced. Alan Moore, go ahead. I, just, I was amused by the, by the way Dan slipped into the fact that this record Wall Street, in spite of the resistance from the Republican Congress, some people think that saying no uh, to some of the big spending ideas actually contributed to the inertia uh, it, it reduced the size of the uh, of the budget deficits. <coughs> it was very inelegant, but but to simply say, Wall Street went up in spite of all this resistance from the Republicans is an unproved assertion. Well, well Bob, hold on, Bob Hines. I mean, how did we prove anything around here? <laughs> Good point, Congressman. Good point. It's a safe argument to make, Alan. <laughs> no, but, but Bob Hines. Al, Al, you know, Alan brings up a very valid point that, you know, the, the Republicans have largely been looked at over the course of 2014 as continuing to be the party of no. When we look back at 2014, did that help them possibly in claiming victory with economic upturns and even in the midterms? I'm not sure that that helped. Uh, I think the biggest help that the Republicans had in the election was the president. <laughs> He was not a uh, he was not a stalwart for his team. Uh, 
uh, he uh, has a, a terrible problem with PR. He just doesn't do it very well. He doesn't talk to the people in ways that they they appreciate. He is, uh, you know, and I think the I think the economy has uh, gotten stronger. I think it will continue to get stronger. But the fact of the matter is, uh, the biggest thing that helped the Republicans in the election was the fact that the, the president was there and everybody could point to him and say, you know, if we'll give us a vote and we get control, we'll clean some things up. And I think that was what the message that the, that the president helped them build. But at the same time, though, Denise, we look at, you know, the, the president still had his economic team driving economic policy that in many aspects brought the economy around a little bit. Uh, although his communications were flawed, is this, an, is this a, a dig at the fact that maybe the president had the right idea going forward at this time in 2014 with economic policies that worked? No. And I'm going to say that because, um, you know, what I would, I've done a lot of traveling, or I did a lot of traveling in 2014 um, to areas that are uh, rural and um very poor, and, and there was immense frustration for both the president and Congress as a whole, the Democratic Republicans, for the business community kept saying, we can't run our businesses like this. What are you guys doing? So I, I wouldn't give any kudos to the president right now. I'd be very hesitant to give any kudos to the Congress, Democratic <coughs> Republicans, because by failing to do anything positive, they're creating a stagnant, um, it's it, it, it just like, it, it, Stagnancy that is not helping anybody, especially the business community that wants to restart and wants to improve process. But Congressman now, still, it seems that the president continues to be the punching bag for not only just Republicans, but those in his party in a time where, as Dan pointed out, we've got 18,000, we could possibly see 19,000 on the Dow Jones fairly quickly. Well, that brings me to the point that I was going to make, that the biggest untold story this year is how badly the Democrats handled the politics of the whole two biennium. And, it, and, and I, we, we pretty well raked the president over the coals, I think, with some accuracy. But where, what, was, what was Nancy Pelosi doing? What was Harry Reid doing? Alan Moore. And, and, and uh, Harry Reid tends to really infuriate the, the Republicans, one of the good things about it. Uh, and, but, but it seems to me that in the House, the Democrats missed opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to make clear that the Republicans were saying no, no, no. Was that due to bad leadership? I think that was due to bad leadership. Absolutely. I don't think they had a plan. I don't think they had a counter proposal to what the Republicans were doing. They just thought they could throw the party of no out there and it would somehow sell itself. And it doesn't work that way. Dan Lipner? Which is why, and we actually saw the other side of the aisle when they had the White House and a Democratic leader in the Senate, how they responded. George W. Bush went after Tom Daschle without pulling any punches and eventually succeeded in getting him ousted. That there's a certain point where the White House has to take the leadership and actually make the point. It is the bully pulpit for a reason, but this president seems incapable of using the tools of the presidency. There is, there is the, uh, the story that came out uh, finally <coughs> about the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the uh, 
the the oil spill in uh, in the Gulf. And one of the one of the president's advisors said, you know, Mr. President, you, this, you should use this opportunity to express your rage about the oil spill. And the response the president gave was, how much oil will that help clean up? And forgetting that the, the presidency is more than just a seat where you can do things. It's also a seat from which you can speak. And he does not use that power. I'm, Congressman not, going, I'm not going to defend the president on, on his use of the politics, because I think that's pretty clear. Uh, and it's too bad that he there's not more FDR in him who, who could do the right policy and also do the politics brilliantly. Uh, this president can't do that. But there wasn't a peep out of the House most of the time. I mean, the, the, you had you had the Tea Party doing its thing, and you had Boehner trying to calm it down and doing his thing, and 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 Pelosi would do the pro forma responses and what have you. But there, were, I saw no well thought out plan on how they were going to point out that the Republicans had a large share of the blame for the fact that nothing was going on in the country. The country hated it. But the Democrats couldn't hang it on the Republicans. Alan Moore. And gosh, look at the economy. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's, uh, it, what it, it, it reminds us, one, that we need to be humble about what drives the economy. We need to kind of reflect on the fact that presidents tend to, to, to get credit when it when the economy is good they get undeserved they, they tend to undeserved they tend to get blamed not undeserved, not always, and undeserved <laughs> yeah. when, it, when it goes down exactly. but but I think Al is 100% right when he talks about about Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid being sort of the acolytes of this grotesque messaging on the on the, the part of the Democrats he made the comment that that he likes Harry cuz he cuz Harry uh, pisses off the Republicans but but don't forget the result what what grew out of that Harry Reid did more to unify a more diverse uh, Republican uh, 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 coalition in the Senate than we think about simply by unilaterally taking the lead to change rules on nominations and to, and to disallow any significant debate uh, on, uh, on amendments in the Senate. McConnell's going to do his best to change that. We'll see what happens. But that unified the Murkowski's uh, and others <coughs> and Collins's on the, if you will, the left side of the, the narrowly drawn Republican Party and the Ted Cruz's and Rand Paul's and others on the right. They, they voted as a block because they all understood that disallowing amendments and, and, and open debate and the role of committees, as we've talked about around here, is contrary to the interests of the Republicans, but also to the Senate. And plenty of Democrats agreed. They went along with their leadership, but held their nose in doing so. And there's, there's, there's very mixed feelings now about the, the hopes among lots of senators, both parties, about the possibly we can do something more now than we could for the last two years. Well, yeah, but, 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 but Mitch McConnell came in saying, my, my responsibility in this Congress is to see that we don't reelect the president. Now, you talk about he's, this is a, a peace branch that he's laying out there. Al, Come on, give Al, me a break. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on. This, All now, right, hold, don't hold. hurt your strong argument from before by pulling that garbage up because to say that 
that I agree that, it's that, garbage, that but leaders, your leader said it. Every leader has as a duty okay. to reelect his party, to, to get his party elected down the road, where I'm shocked that the <laughs> Senate leader said, we would like to replace this guy with a Republican next time out. Shocking. There's, and there's, shocking. there's, there's gambling going on in the other room, oh, too. Okay, yeah. hold on, hold on. Bob Hines. <laughs> Well, it's, it strikes me that what we have seen uh, so far from the majority leader in the Senate, that he is uh, he's trying to uh, find a way to bridge some of the, some of the uh, gaps and reach out, and I think he's going to be maybe successful at that. Uh, there are obviously some things uh, like the pipeline that the president will, no matter what the House or Senate well, we're going to talk about that in a second because yeah. the White House came out today and said yeah. if it comes across his desk, yeah. he's going to veto. Yeah, well, you know, he, he can do it. He's got the power. But the fact of the matter is, I suspect that we're going to see on some of the major legislation, you're going to see some efforts on the part of Republicans to let the Democrats know that if they're willing to help a little bit, uh, they'll get something done. Denise Crabb? Well, and they have to because both sides took it in the ear in December when they passed the Chronibus. I mean, it, it was a huge piece of legislation that nobody had read. I mean, and, and so you had a Republican House coming in saying that it promised its members that they would. <coughs> they didn't. Then you had, you know, then you had the Senate side that was negotiating against a bill that's because, and they were negotiating against the House bill because the Senate hadn't passed anything. So nobody had seen anything. And then we were presented with this rather large gift, and people woke up and said, what the heck is in this thing? So, I mean, that is going to be a big issue in 2015 and 2016. People are going to say, we don't want you to negotiate in the back room. We want more transparency, and we want to use the committee system so that we know what is being passed. That last point that we just heard is really the key. If we can get back to regular order in the Senate, it would be it would be one of the best gifts we've ever had but was that, in the house. Yeah, but, yeah. But, but let me ask you that question though, Bob. I mean, in 2014, we saw, it, and not just in 2014, but throughout the 113th Congress, we saw big gangs come up. We saw policies being driven by, you know, very powerful people leaving out about another 400 some odd members of Congress on both sides, out in the out in the cold. Is that a big story, the fact that we didn't have regular order throughout 2014? Could we have seen more cooperation? The sad well, thing is it was not a big story. It was vitally important, but it was not a big story. Well, let me ask you, the reason it's not a big story is because people don't, don't understand what it means. Regular order is, is the process of introducing legislation, committee hearings, Analyzing the bill, negotiating the, how the final, what the final bill looks like, both sides involved in it, and then it goes to the floor. And in the Senate, literally, in the Senate, literally, Congressman, you, you said that that was the biggest non-story in 2014. Why isn't why isn't it something that the the mainstream media picks up on as being something that needs to be broadcast? Well, inside baseball, it. Is it? This is where this is one of the places where I think the Democrats could have made some headway. You can't explain it the way we would explain it around the table. Bob just gave an excellent explanation. If you don't know anything about the House and the, and the Congress, you probably didn't get what he was saying. 
if you, on the other hand, argued, and I, I haven't sent and given a lot of the thought of this, but if you argued, we want to have all the members of the Congress be able to participate. They're the sp- spokesmen of the people. They will bring the people's views to the thing. You, you, you do several things with that, not the least of which <clears throat> is you would bypass the, the, the political science argument and get to something that the people would respond to that would get you where you wanted to go in okay, the political okay, science. Okay, okay. Alan Moore, last no, word. No, yeah, I agree. I agree there with Al that that, uh, that the public doesn't understand. It's a hard sell to make them understand. Many of the people who talk about what's going on in the world, writing or talking on TV, don't understand either. Those who do understand will write the occasional column, make the comment. It will it will fall on dead ears, and then you move on. It, it's a real challenge of in this media age and the rules of information and the lazy uh, uh, the lazy listener uh, to to convince people how important this really is. Congressman Al, thirty seconds. I have an example, and I don't know if I can do it in thirty seconds. I'll try uh, on on term limits. Most people who were opposed to term limits would, would sit and give the political science argument. And I've watched audiences just absolutely fall asleep when you do it. I tried something once and I said, you know, what they basically this does is it says you're too damn dumb to figure out who you should vote for the second time. And by George, people perked up. And said, you know, I'm not too stupid to be able to elect my own people. Nobody ever used that argument. They stuck with Good the point. Well, it, it, my 30 seconds is up. There you go. I yield, <laughs> I yield back, back my time. Thank, thank you, Congressman. Appreciate that regular order. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about a little bit more about what the big stories were in 2014. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back. In two minutes, stay with us. You know, you hear us talk about Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's being the place to be. America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends, or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know, Shelley's is the place for private parties. Shelly's Back Room is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250. From cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, Shelly's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelly's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelly's can make accommodations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelley's Back Room, go to www.shelleysbackroom.com slash private-party. Shelley's Back Room, the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also the place for private parties.
live at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, big stories out of 2014, one that everybody's still talking about that still uh, got the nation spun up on either side of the argument is the situation that happened in Ferguson, the situation that happened on Staten Island in New York and several of other places, and the issue of police brutality and and uh, uh, race relations regarding police departments. Uh, you know, when we've, we've had police-involved shootings throughout the course of history in America, but it seems that the situation in Ferguson sparked up a national debate, almost lit a fuse, if you will. Uh, Bob Hines, what made a what some have said a clean shoot in Ferguson, Missouri, turn into a larger debate about use of force and in police interaction with the community? I think that. that uh, well, as soon as a clean shoot. Yeah, I I think that's the case. Ferguson to me is, is was the uh, bless you was a was a fuse that once it uh, it exploded uh, it spread all over the country. It's, we had two or three other other situations relatively similar to it in the sense of you know here's a guy with no no weapon he's dead and the cops there and he with his gun and and for reasons that I don't know why uh, it 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 us most like that. The fact of the matter is, it, it is a it is today as we sit here right now. I'm sure there are uh, there are other problems that are gonna, that are that are fusing, getting ready to blow because it it may be too cold to do it. I don't know, but right now the fact of the matter is, it is something that this country has got to get a get a grip of. The police have to be a little more careful uh, about uh, about about how they do business. At the same time, they've got to do their business. They need to be able to do their business. But Dan Lipner, you know, when we when we look at what happened in Ferguson and then the uh, off, the offshoot protest that happened as a result of the no bill coming out of the Staten Island death uh, at the hands of New York City Police Department, uh, as well as others, it seems to me that there's now a bigger question as an attorney. You look at it and say, wait a minute, the criminal justice system went through its due process, issued a statement of no bill. It seems that there, that part of the protest is that our judicial system doesn't work. Is that accurate? Yeah, well, the judicial system and law enforcement do kind of work hand in glove together. And uh, there is a serious question about it. And that's partially that we've seen in people's movement against the death penalty, or at least the practice of the death penalty nationwide, that the data that we've now seen does more than simply suggest, it seems patently clear, that if you are a minority, uh, the justice system and the death penalty, which has been analyzed rather extensively, treats you unfairly. And to suggest that it, it as you go further down the, the less severe uh, criminal ranks, that that would still be true is not, it, not a difficult leap to make. So the riots that we've seen and the, and the protests that we've seen are in response to to these issues that we've seen, and the and minority communities have finally spoken up, and everyone else will begin to take notice. Congressman Al, this is an issue that is just right for people on both sides to go to the extreme. Uh, 
<clears throat> the police have a very difficult job, and when they are attacked, they not only rise to their own defense, but many people who, who believe they've got a tough job rise to their defense as well. Likewise, people who think that they should be fair point out that, you know, you, you really got to put a chokehold on, on and have five policemen on, on a man and, and he ends up dead. What, what, what happens? My thought is what we really need to do is look at the training our police are given. They have a difficult job. And, they, and, and here's an example. I, I watched a cop I knew who was a very professional cop and, and a very good cop take somebody down and pull them out of the car and slam them across the hood of the car. And, <clears throat> and I thought, Jesus, that's, that's not the way this guy normally acts. And what even I thought, why, why would he do that? Well, one reason might be that they've been taught <coughs> that it is safer to use overwhelming power to bring somebody under control rather than let it get out of hand you're protecting yourself, you're protecting the public if you get that person under control immediately. And a big show of force tends to intimidate and, and achieve that end. So if their training is to do that, then it really encourages them in a direction that can get out of hand itself. And how exactly you train police to the contrary, I don't know. Maybe we should look at some other countries that don't have this kind of a problem. Uh, England, perhaps, I don't know. But it seems to me that if you don't get at, at the training of it, you're never going to resolve this problem with all the good things and all the demonstrations and all the rest of it. Alan Moore. Um, you know, in just about every endeavor, we can think about ways where better education, better training, um, better support, better counseling can help. I, I'd be the last person to say there can't be improvements there. Um, I, I, I think that there are some other things that are in the culture that also contribute here that absolutely you can't train around. And if you in certain parts in certain parts of the country, where if you've got if you've got Let's say young African American kids who, whether fairly or not, are more likely to be accused of and convicted of a crime, and that may speak to underlying unfairnesses, but it also may speak to to uh, to demographics, to economics, to crime statistics, family life, and so on. Um, and if you think I got I got a young person, we've also got a we got a we got a country that's awash with with handguns. So you think you're, you're sitting there thinking this person's more likely to have committed a crime. He's more likely to have a weapon of some kind, and he's more likely to give us lip. Um, and they respond. They almost. I mean, they respond in part because of training, but a lot because of experience and what their buddies are doing. And you got to train. You also have to to kind of realize. Wow, it's a weird world well, out there. If you're going to go there, then there's also some who are just bigots. No question. Yeah. There are some bad actors in the force, and sometimes those bad actors are protected by their fellows, and that's why that's why you have investigative units in police forces all across the country. 
what the numbers are and how do you decide. It's not like you, it's, it's a spectrum. You've got guys who are almost always good, but they have a bad day, and then they turn into a hard ass. You have other guys who are just bad apples, and you have, then you have guys who are always measured, reasoned, thoughtful, considerate, and everything in between, and what you are one day may be different than what you were a week a week earlier when you had a particularly good day or particularly bad day, or you just lost a buddy mm-hmm, in an mm-hmm. incident, and you're just scared and furious. Yeah. Go ahead, Denise Crap. Washington Post had an interesting story about the Border Patrol, um, I think it was in yesterday's paper. They're hiring 1,500 new employees. They're all going to be women. And, it, you know, and they managed to get an exemption because what they said was they found uh, with what's going on right now in the immigration that they wanted women uh, border patrol agents because many of the individuals that are coming across on the immigration side are females and young children, and so they wanted the women to be the first line of what they saw. So I, I would be very interested to see how this helps border patrol and how it also could help police units. Because if you need to bring in people that look like you, be it gender or be it race or ethnic, how could that help the process? And, and that I thought was a very encouraging sign and something to watch out for in the future. I thought it was an encouraging sign, too, because I represented a border district. I dealt with the, the, the border officers and the border patrol. And the border patrol was out of control. I mean, it, it was terrible. I had a situation up there at Blaine, Washington, where... <clears throat> D.C. would send in a new guy, and within a matter of weeks, the border patrolman had intimidated the guy to the point that they were still running the show, and they were that went on for years. I I, I, I must admit, I, I fought with the higher ups in the border patrol and got absolutely nowhere. And then Reagan appointed a brand new guy as head of the border patrol, and so I called him up. And he gave me all the answers that I'd been getting irregularly, and I, I responded to each one of them because I'd heard them all before. And and he, so he he got on his horse and he went out to Blaine and looked at the situation, cleaned it up, fired a bunch of people, and it, it just took somebody from the outside to go in and uh, and take care of us. Bob Hines. God bless Ronald Reagan. Yeah, yeah, yeah no kidding. <laughs> I knew you were going to and say that. And his partner Al Swift. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Bipartisanship at its finest. Bob Hines. Stepping back from the immediacy, one of the biggest problems we've got in this country is the urban schools in, in, in big cities. My God, I mean, what is it? I think the graduation rate in this District of Columbia is what, 38%? Yeah. Yeah. Now, so what does that mean? That means two-thirds of these young, young, uh, mostly uh, minority groups, citizens, kids, 18 years old, out of school, they probably haven't spent much education time. They don't really have a good education. A lot of them quit, leave school, and, and they don't have a job. And they get in trouble, and you, you can't you can't say, "Oh my God, they're all bad kids." But Bob, is the it, problem is we have not done enough to see to it that education is better better handled and opportunities are provided, and we're not doing it as a nation. But but we look at the urban aspect. You look at Ferguson, Missouri, which is very much suburban on the verge of being rural, as we heard from our friend 
uh, NBC anchor uh, Pat McGonigal out there in St. Louis, this is not a major urban environment out there. Is, is, is this a national epidemic that we're dealing with, that if we did invest more in education, we might see more of a common ground between law enforcement and the community? Well, I think that if the schools did a better job of educating young people and, uh, and uh, let, let's say, uh, citizenizing them, I think we'd better off, much better off. Alan Moore? Well, if, if, if only more money for schools would be the answer. But, my God, in some of the school districts around the country, including Washington, D.C., we spend unbelievable amounts of money. And in some schools, we have good results, and in some, we don't. And then you look behind what's, what, what the, 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 the teachers, the curricula, the school books, the school buildings. We've got a bunch of new schools in D.C. We've got charter schools. Um, and then you say, well, why are we still having these problems? Well, we've got this extraordinarily high rate of single-parent families, large families, lack of job or lack of job advancement, Poor child care options, drugs. Um, drugs, and suddenly we've got a whole social culture that a school is just a part of. The school can affect some of that, but it can't do the job. And then you say, well, what do we do then? Do we just throw up our hands and say, well, never mind? Denise, Denise Crap, hold on. Denise Crap. I've got a slightly different take on it, and, and that's I mean, partly because I have kids in the school system right now. Um, what we're finding is that if you get more uh, parental involvement in the schools, the schools that have strong PTAs are the ones where you're seeing the children perform well. The schools that don't have the strong parental involvement are the ones that are failing. And I'm hearing it both, you know, here in D.C., but, you know, from my friends around the country, both parents and the teachers. I mean, teachers are actively looking for parents to come in and either help out on a daily basis, provide monetary support, or just be a resource, and that's just not happening. Yeah, and, and one of the problems there is that so many of these young young citizens have have never had a father to discipline them, help them grow up. Uh, their mother is is probably has has more than one child she's trying to take care of, and she's overwhelmed. I mean, you know, we we have got to find a way to build. The structure of the family, and I don't know how you do that. Dan Lipner. Oh my God, it's a mess. I, 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 I am tempted just to allow you all to, or my Republican colleagues around the table, to continue speaking because you will inevitably come to the conclusion <laughs> that having more of the welfare state in place to help assist families uh, to be good parents, to allow schools not just to simply be that island in the storm for kids. And while the 30% graduation rate is atrocious in D.C., I need to challenge Alan on the number there because D.C. is an outlier as far as the amount of money spent per pupil. It is true that D.C. is actually the example that you can point to for money being spent per pupil and, and poor success rate. That is not true every place else. D.C. is a bit of an exception. Let me, let me, let me jump in. Let's be careful about D.C. because there are things in place here. But but hold on hold on hold on hold on. Hold on. But let me expand, let's, let me expand on one other point that that Bob made. That there's saving that a lot of teachers make is students come to school with the best parents they have, and that is part part of the issue. And what Denise said is absolutely correct. The, the question is how do you affect that? 
And when you have an overall economy where, where Americans are working harder, still not keeping up with inflation, and you're asking parents to engage, even though in some cases they're working one, two, and in, even in some cases three jobs in order to allow to keep their, their children housed, food, uh, fed, and clothed. That's, that's an awfully large demand. So unless you actually take those struggles into part of the... All right, but Dan, let me, let me ask you this question. When you, when you sit there and say that you'll come to the conclusion to the Republican colleagues around the table that this is an argument for a welfare state or for social economic support from the government, yes. we'll go that far. And we have that. In but hold on, hold on. Numbers. Let me ask the question. Let me ask Dan the question. When you look at the number of state-sponsored, federally-sponsored welfare programs, social programs enabling parents to become active in their lives that still don't show a high success rate, it seems to me that that doesn't lend to the argument that more social state controls are the way to go. I will challenge you on the faith on the success rate. The, the wel welfare programs are wildly successful. As far as people who are actually give me on one, the, give me one, <laughs> give me Which one. one do you want? No, no, give me one. Job Corps, Job Corps, Medicaid, uh, uh, <laughs> preschool, food programs, yeah. pre-K. Two of those food programs and Medicaid dollars, a trillion dollars. Hopefully, we get something for it. Yeah, but but you're talking about two programs that have well, a longer time, Alan. Wait a minute, per year. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Per year, Alan. we spend a trillion dollars. In, in the discretionary support, budget. In, the in, in income support all right, programs. Hold on, hold on. First of all, Dan, the two programs that you talked about, okay, food stamps, food welfare, food programs, and Medicaid, are two of the biggest fraudulent programs in federal spending. You've got fraud running rampant through both those programs. And it's been proven by GAO and each OIG in each of those programs. So, to sit there and say that those are successful, if they were successful, we wouldn't have the fraud that runs rampant through any of those programs. Medicaid fraud from, rece from recipients of Medicaid is not the case. <sighs> Medicaid fraud from doctors bilking the system is the case. Whoa, and you're comparing it's, it's, wait, 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 hold on, 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 hold on. Dan. Not all you, doctors. No, Dan, Dan, hold on, hold on, Dan, hold on, hold on. You cannot tell me because the inspector general at CMS and HHS has come out many times and said that fraud is the biggest hindrance to Medicaid. You go to the Department of Agriculture, which runs the federal food stamp program. Define, and define Medicaid fraud for me. It could be anything. It could be anything from false claims for hospital visits or medical care to $200 plastic tubes Let's move away from Medicaid. There, I mean, we yeah. have a bigger. We have a bigger problem. Into, we're into, we're into we, we, have, we are. We are. We are. We are. Congressman Al. I, I would like to point out that we started this out by saying the solution to maybe crime and some of those problems with the police and whatever is more education. Let me point out: I can't think of a social problem in this country in which a better education system isn't an important part. It's not just this; it's everything else. And we need to figure out a way that we are going to improve the schools. Now, I've always thought, why, why in the world can't we? <coughs> what if the federal government were to say, well, let any state that wants to come up with its own 
effort to try it, or even in a couple of its school districts, try some experimental program. It can be hard military kind of training. It can be uh, social things, you know, running around as they did in Andy Mame, you know, running around naked playing ducks. Uh, whatever. Whatever they want to. We are not talking about Alswa's program but, of going communal but, nudity. But, We've tried it. Tried it but allow experiments. these experiments to go on and track them carefully. Experiments yeah. get done, and I suppose reports are written, and nobody ever reads them. They go away, and, you know. But actually test Various means of different approaches to education and track schools. Okay, but okay. Then, first of all, we got to take a break. We got to take a break real quick. Uh, we're going to we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the economy being a big story, and that includes a lot of various aspects of it. We're going to talk about the economy when we come back here on Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom. 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. You know, for those who listen to Backroom Politics and know about Shelley's Backroom, they think of it as some sort of cigar bar where politicians go to smoke their cigars and drink their martinis. Actually, what you don't know about Shelly's Back Room, Shelly's Back Room has one of the greatest menus in the city. I kid you not. You've got the campfire wings, famous campfire wings, one pound of roasted, not fried, seasoned marinated jumbo chicken rings served with their own special honey mustard sauce. Folks, if you like chicken wings, you've never had the campfire wings best wings in the city, bar none, I guarantee. If you don't like it, Al, you can call us up and tell us that you don't like it. Uh, You have daily specials. Come down on a day when they have the Justin Chicken Sandwich. The sandwich named after me, breaded chicken breast, provolone cheese, thick-cut bacon on a Kaiser roll served with a honey mustard sauce. Folks, it doesn't get more artery-clogging than that, but it is worth it. Come down to Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., the premier sponsor of Backroom Politics.
And we're back here at Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., as we continue our discussion over what the big stories in 2014 were. And we look forward to 2015 in the next hour. But real quickly, we got to talk about, and we touched on it a little bit earlier, but uh, a lot of the economic stories that came out in 2015 were big. Uh, we talked a little bit about the uh, the rise of the stock market. Stock market hit 18,000, which a lot of people didn't think was possible. It hit it and went and blow through it. We may even see 19,000 here in a couple of months. Uh, not after the last couple Yeah, well, maybe not, but that, that's a 2015 story. 2014, we saw a big increase in the stock market. We saw a, 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 a nosedive at the end of 2014 of oil prices. I was driving back from North Carolina uh, at the uh, end of the year, around the first of the year, and I paid $1.91 a gallon in southwest Virginia. For gas, for regular unleaded. Uh, but we see all of these things. And by the way, the consumers are eating it up. Uh, but the big question is, you have uh, oil de- oil independence, uh, fuel independence, petroleum independence, energy independence is a big story that was thrown around 2014. But the real question is, is that a real reality in today's world, I'm going to start with you, Alan Moore. Is that real? Is you know, energy independence something that we saw in 2014? Yeah, you know, this energy stuff is so interesting, and and we watch prices go up and we watch them come down, and we watch them go up and we watch them come down, and we get mad at this party or that party, or we thank this group or that group when they're going down. We're loving it when they're going up. We're squeezed and angry and distressed. Uh, when they're going down, when we should be increasing the uh, the, the fuel tax and uh, dedicating that uh, that amount of money to infrastructure, which is woefully falling apart and inadequate, no, here, here, the here. politicians won't do it. When it goes up, uh, we, you, we we have this massive uh, set of side investments in in new drilling technologies, new recovery technologies, conservation, alternative sources. And then right now, when 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 uh, when oil drops below 50 a barrel, when it was up over 110 uh, last year, it's it's like whoa! Now what's going on? And a lot of uh, a lot of the marginal production uh, is is not economic. Um, the alter- the the green movement takes this massive hit because it only makes sense when you've got really high energy prices. Mm-hmm. And it just it, it's again it's another sort of source of Humility that that you can see some trends, but even the experts they say you know, we're not quite sure why it happened this way. And then the the uh, the OPEC countries who, who don't control the market have a huge influence on it. The Saudis, the biggest influence in OPEC, and they say we're not gonna we're not gonna cut back production to try to let prices go back up uh, for a variety of reasons. And then that squeezes Russia and Iran and Venezuela. Um, it it's just strange. The moment we start to think we know where the prices are going to be in six months, um, go home, have a drink, and be a little more humble. SUVs for everyone. Yeah, there we go. And craft. But I can tell you, practically speaking, you're going to have some problems now with the price of oil going down. You've got big companies that are saying, "Hey, maybe we don't want to do as much investment in the Gulf." And, and that's coming from the LNG. So they're beginning to pull back on the LNG. So you're not going to see as many construction jobs. In, uh, in the Gulf Coast. The other area that people are beginning to talk about, um, quite frankly, is the Jones Act. There was a very interesting discussion that was held at the Heritage Foundation where John McCain was there and he said he wanted to break the Jones Act. Breaking the Jones Act means 
that you would allow um, foreign flag vessels to go from one point in the United States to another point in the United States. And he's saying that right now because of what's happening in the, re the re refineries. The, um, the northeastern refineries are, are saying that it's cheaper to you know, get fuel from other places than to try to move it from Louisiana up to Rhode Island or from um, Texas into Massachusetts because of the costs that are associated with U.S. crews. Uh, that will be a story that we're going to be hearing but, about more and more in but, 2015 as this oil price goes down. All right, but when, when, we, when we talk about energy independence, you know, we, 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 we've seen, you know, uh, everybody from T. Boone Pickens go off and saying that natural gas is a reality in order for us to have energy independence. Now, granted, T. Boone Pickens has made a bunch of load of money off of, of natural gas. Uh, but when we, when we look at the big stories of 2014, one of the things that – May, that could have hurt the energy independence movement or hurt the energy and economic climate globally was the advancement of Russia into Ukraine and Crimea. Uh, when you look at all of that, a large part of the energy dependence for Eastern Europe and a lot of our NATO allies come from natural gas and petroleum products that come from Russia. Uh, but that doesn't seem to have hurt it, Bob. No, it doesn't. The, the only thing, you know, Russia is in such a bad shape right now, it's just not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to go that far. No, no, but, but, no, but that brings up a good question. Is we're, seeing an, we're seeing a resurgence. Well, I won't say a resurgence. We're seeing a bump up in our economic uh, stability. But you look at places like Russia. You look at even Japan. China is now going through, for the first time, their government officials are calling a recessive economy. They won't say the recession word, but they'll say it's a recessive economy. Yeah. Dan Lipner. Well, we have a bunch of things at play there. So the, the Chinese economy has been <laughs> growing at astronomical rates for more than 20 years, and there's been some folks that have said that a lot of that's artificial. So as, it gets, as the Chinese economy gets further integrated with the global economy, paper gains suddenly need to be realized, and there's the, re the Chinese recession, that could be part of it. But as far as the, our own economic growth, the, for actual productive size of the economy, I'm going to exclude two sectors that are drains on what I consider productive size of the economy. Those two drains are energy costs and health care costs, both of which have suddenly, the energy costs are now, as Alan said, they're now lower, some of which within our control from our own domestic oil production, and a lot of it, thanks to chaos in, in other parts of the world, has driven down energy prices. But in addition to that, the, sub, the now control of healthcare costs is growing at astronomical rates prior to Obamacare. Say what you will about it, what other, other effectiveness is of it. Without question, the cost of healthcare is now within control, so corporations can now suddenly control costs and they can now look at expansion, and these and these, these kind of controls allow for businesses to be to make investments in other places and be more productive. But Alan Moore, you know, when when we look at in this case oil, there was there was talk in 2014, early in 2014, that many economic powers were looking to not use the dollar standard as the benchmark, but going to more of a commodities based, and they used oil as a possibility for using the benchmark for their economy. That has since flipped with the downgrade 
of uh, price of oil per barrel and the strengthening of the dollar against other currencies. Is this a roller coaster effect that we're seeing? Is this a correction? Yeah, everybody's always looking for some new thing, some new way to to either create stability or to harm this group, harm that group. Um, we even saw this bizarre business of the Bitcoin, which was all the rage for a while. This this new phony. Uh, currency that people were speculating in and making money, losing money. Um, it, it, I, I don't think the dollar, as the as the as the, the cornerstone currency, is going is going anywhere any anytime soon. The Euro, Europe's economy is is really hurting. That helps hold energy prices in an odd way because they're so slow to recover. They haven't uh, increased have the increase in demand uh, uh, for energy that 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 we thought. Dan, Dan was onto something when he talked about this this impact of, of energy uh, decline and the opportunities that that creates and the and the, the realignment of who's strong and who's weak. Uh, it is he he I think overstated a little bit, but we come to expect that from Dan. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, what's going on with with healthcare costs? They're not under control, but but they have they they're not is it increasing as fast as they were, and all the big experts are still trying to figure out whether that's temporary and what caused it. Is it how much of it's Obamacare? How much of it's the attention to health care that is causing consumers to be more careful about consumption? How much of it is 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 controlled prices um, in Medicare and Medicaid? There, but there's a there's there's storm clouds out on the horizon. The, 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 the word is not out, and, and believe me, companies are still very, very nervous about, about health care costs. But there is no denying that there has been a, a reprieve of sorts with still increasing costs, but at a slower rate than we had, than, than we had seen uh, in, the, in the prior decades. Denise Kraft, real quick. As somebody who spent oh, 60 minutes on hold today with Kaiser Permanente trying to deal with a bill or overbilling, I cannot say with a straight face that health care costs are being managed, nor can I say with a straight face that Obamacare is as perfect as everybody wants it to be. Oh, I didn't say perfect. Let me be clear. I, I am merely talking about the cost curve, which Alan has already conceded. He's not conceded Obamacare is the reason for the cost curve shift, even though there's about 30 years of lack of control of cost for Obamacare, see, control I, I, of cost curve. How about Obamacare the recession? The recession. Be All right, hold on, hold on, hold on. Hey, oh, hey, hey, easy, everybody, easy, 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 everybody. Recession's a great way to start. Good Lord. I'm being quiet. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and you know what? I'm going to take this opportunity. I'm, I'm going to take, take this opportunity to take a break. Uh, good talk. But when we come back, we're going to switch gears. We're going to talk about what's coming up in 2015, including the opening of the 114th Congress that happened today and the, and the drama surrounding that. Yeah. When we come back here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., we'll be back in four minutes. Stay with us. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor, hey, 
you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelly's Back Room that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches. They've got Isla Sky scotches, blended, single malt, anything you want. Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays. Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., for our second hour of our first show of 2015, as we kick off our fifth year on the air here from Shelley's Back Room in Washington, D.C., on Blog Talk Radio. Hey, uh, talking about what's going on in 2015, we got to start off with what happened today up on Capitol Hill. For those of you who have not been watching any sort of media today, the 114th Congress just started, and they were seated and sworn in today to start a new era 
of gridlock here in Washington, D.C., where Republicans now have control of both the House and the Senate for the first time in a generation. And it's going to be an interesting run. So the big story that happened today was, as part of the opening of the 114th Congress, that's our representatives elected a new Speaker of the House. Needless to say, John Boehner, the current Speaker of the House for the 114th Congress, was elected in a majority vote. However, several players put up their own names in a couple instances, said, I want to be Speaker, and nominated themselves. One of them being Ted Yoho, Republican out of Florida. Why does all the crap show of politics have to come from Florida? Isn't that, isn't that pronounced Yahoo? No, it's Yah, it's Yoho. It's Yoho. <laughs> I, you almost got me doing it. Thanks, Al. But the, the big story is that John Boehner, in a vote that hasn't seen that kind of opposition in decades. Ever. Uh, no, no, no. There was one other. Uh, his, his previous his previous time. No, uh, I don't. I don't. I don't anyways, I don't know the statistics. I don't know the statistics, but it was definitely a shot across the bow for the speaker, Bob Hines. Uh, is this a new revolt in the party that we thought might have been quashed in the last part of the 113th Congress, or is this a shot across the bow telling Speaker Boehner to really get? a lot more conservative in the way he runs the House. Neither. What it is, there are, there are a bunch of, of loonies, I would call them, uh, extreme right-wing... Uh, Remember, we're people. about civility. I'm being very <coughs> civil. Civility. I haven't called them by what they really are. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, they are um, absolutely unable to understand that every political position they want to take on legislation is a matter of principle. Everything is a principle. I mean, and, and they won't give up a nickel. And they just vote no on everything, and all they're doing is just trying to upset the, the, the destruction. But, and we've only, fortunately, there are only about, uh, and you can tell the, the hard number is about 25 members of the House of Representatives, Republicans all, uh, are just absolutely right-wing kooks, and there's nothing else you can say about them. But but the one man's thing about them is is there aren't any more of them. But but one man's kook is another <laughs> man's conservative advocate, Bob. No, that's not true. These guys are loonies. <laughs> <laughs> Alan Moore, would you like to pile on the loonies? No, I I I, uh, I think there are 25 different guys that are motivated by different things. You were asking, is it, a, is it a shot across the bow? No, it's a BB gun <laughs> shot across the bow. 25 people did not vote for Boehner. Who did they vote for? They, they voted for eight different people, right. two of whom were senators, <laughs> one of whom was Colin Powell, and then somebody voted present. Right. So, so the, 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 five, the five House members divvied up about 18 votes. Um, that is hardly a shot across the bow, hardly a movement. There, but but some of these guys in camp campaigned in ways that that, that where they were setting themselves apart from from John Boehner and what some people some conservatives view as accommodationist and basically said I could never support this guy as leader and then they had to deliver on that but to say there was a movement I think is is wrong and I don't consider them all loonies I mean these guys had to 
had to get elected. Al can talk about what you have to do to get elected, and when you say you're going to do something, when you're getting elected, you better deliver on but, it, because if you don't deliver on what you said you're going to do, that, that, that can be the most painful thing. But I think it remains to be seen how this will play out in the in the course of time. He's, John Boehner has not had an easy time. He's got better numbers now. He can lose 25 guys and still have a comfortable margin of victory. How fabulous is that? But, Alan, but Congressman Al, traditionally, as we've seen in, in 113 Congresses before, that we, we've seen the vote for the majority, or the, the vote for Speaker of the House for the ruling party, in this case the Republicans, in other instances Democrats, where the vote for the Speaker is a vote of confidence. It is a way to show America that we are 100% behind our party leader in that chamber, and that seems to have gone by the wayside in this vote. They just don't understand what they're doing. I mean, the reason that you have straight party line votes for speaker is it's to assert the majority and the minority. And they each have roles in this thing. And uh, you, you, you traditionally don't start the fight in choosing your leader. You save it so that you can fight other battles that are arguably, and I would argue, are more important. These guys just don't understand that at all, and as such, they're 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 not contributing. I when when I was elected in my class, <clears throat> there was a there was a what 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 were they called? A whole bunch of conservative Democrats who blue dogs. Blue dogs. dogs. They're all gone now. They yeah. became the blue dogs. They were called something else yeah. as well. But and they caused a lot of problems. Uh, Bill Graham, you know, used to just drive Jim Wright nuts and so forth. So. But at least those people and the Newt Gingriches on the other side had programs and specific kinds of policies that they were pursuing so that they weren't just being foolish. And these people were just being foolish. Dan Lipner. Well, I don't know if I agree with Deere just being foolish because there is the wing of the Republican Party that is the just say no to anything, just say no to government. And they are standing on a principle of sorts um, that, they, that there is a fair amount that believes you don't need government at all for society to run outside of, outside of a police force and currency. Um, and that, that wing is not inconsequential. I would argue that probably a sizable percentage of the 25 are that wing. But you know, it, it's funny though. You, you know, you look at, for example, one of the the, uh, the one of the uh, uh, representatives today that voted against Boehner and, and actually uh, nominated uh, Louis Gomer out of Texas. There we go. Is uh, Jim Bridenstine out of Oklahoma one? Uh, Jim Bridenstine nominates Louis Gomer, but when last cycle, when John Boehner went to Tulsa, where the congressional district that uh, Mr. Bridenstine is from. He was not invited because he's displayed a lot of negativity towards the Speaker and his authority as Speaker, as head of party. And he, when he showed up, he, was, he says, oh, well, no, I should be there. The speaker said, no, we're, we're good. They want, the, they want the, the celebrity of the Speaker there, but yet at the same time, they don't want to come together as a party as a whole to support the person that largely everybody knows – 
short of there being a disaster, there's going to be that speaker. Bottom they line, see their role. They see their role in Congress totally differently than. 99% of the, everybody who has ever served in the House of Representatives has seen the role. And they're not going to get anywhere. They can cause Boehner some minor worries, I, I think. But uh, depending on how he plays it and depending on what the Democrats do, uh, you know, they got the Republicans have a, a running chance at being fairly positive in their approach. And, <clears throat> and these people are, are the ones that, that the, the, the Democrats are going to point at all the time and say, look, look at the crazies you've got in your party, and you're all like that. That's the demagoguery of the Democrats. Dan Lipner, I, I think that's understating their power and the recent history. Uh, we forgot that Eric Cantor was knocked off by these people and now is replaced in leadership after everyone moved up by I'm not quite clan enough, or uh, Steve Scalise. I mean, this. this oh, that's not that's fair. Come on, unfair, that's unfair, Dan. That's not fair. Come on, Dan. Let's be real. Come on, Justin. We expect that from Dan. That's true. Alone. All right, all right. There, there is more coming out about his his run and his, okay, his speaking Dan. to his former David Duke group. But that being said, they also knocked off immigration reform, knocked it off the agenda entirely. So this. This quiet group, or the small group that is not terribly quiet in the House, actually does represent a, a, a vocal group of the Republican Party. Going back a couple of years, I actually had a track where infiltrated Republican events against Bob Ladd Northwest Ohio. And I was shocked by the video that we got back that had people in this Republican event for this congressman speaking out against. Speaker Boehner saying Boehner was the problem, and this was in Ohio. I mean, this is there is a vocal group out there that wants to be heard. The question is how, how they can organize. Alan Moore. Again, we, we we ought not be shocked that there are some deep divisions in the Republican Party. I'm reminded that just a few months ago, when uh, when Nancy Pelosi stood for stood uh, again for election as the the leader of the Democrats in the House. 20 members voted against her, um, and it, it 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 didn't matter even that much. I mean, there's there are people who disagree, and they disagree on the merits, they disagree on the politics, they disagree on personality. What's what's interesting in this case, though, is that 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 this this far right group has shrunk now. Is it is it gone? No. Is it without influence? Of course not. It's got some influence, but it's also a disparate group. They didn't rally around one person. Two, one person voted for Senator Jeff right. Sessions. And Rand Paul. One Another one voted for, for Senator Rand, Rand Paul. Paul. And Colin Powell got the vote, as I said. It's like, where's the unifying theme? I'm well, sure there are also people who voted for, for the Speaker, who are not going to be with him on on various issues? This was Al's point. This is not the time to make your point unless unless you went on the record in your campaign. And I don't know how many did, but some did. I won't vote for John Boehner as as Republican leader. Well, if you say that, you probably ought to live up to that, even if you even if there's no credible movement uh, behind it. But it doesn't mean it's a cakewalk going forward. There's still plenty of problems for John Boehner. 
among those who voted for him. Congressman now is holding up his toy microphone. But if you're going, if, if you're going to be uh, concerned, as Dan is, about their influence, they could have made that more so that I would have taken them seriously if the 18 had had 18 votes for somebody. Exactly, exactly. I agree. And they they couldn't even agree among themselves as to what they wanted to right. do. And and that's the reason I think they are not going to be very influential. But, but Bob Hines, but Bob Hines when, when we look at the dynamics that are involved right now in, in the House, we talked a lot last year and even in the, in the year before throughout the 113th Congress, we talked about the fact that there was literally five or six laser targets on the back of Speaker Boehner waiting to take him out because he didn't fulfill conservative ideology enough, at least enough for them in their in their sect of the party. It, it still seems, as Alan pointed out, where they've, they've consolidated or they may have constricted a little bit in their numbers, but the voice still seems to be not only active, but garnering a lot of outside the Beltway support from middle American Republicans, a lot of them hardcore staunch conservatives. Well, if you take a look at the fact that you have, in effect, 246, I think it is, Republicans in the House, and you've got, let's say, 25, 26, whatever it is, uh, you know, that tells you that they are a relatively marginal group. Five percent of the party in the yeah. House. Yeah. The reality is that there there are these people. Could they be enough to cause gridlock inside the party for getting some of the more moderate agenda through that might help get some of the gridlock broken? Well, no, I don't think so. I mean, I don't think that 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 any that any one of them have any significant uh, following in in the House. If right. anybody did. There, there would have been more unity among the group, and they might have gotten more votes that way. Yeah, they're they're, they're did, just a bunch of bunch of people with, with just have probably different ideas even among themselves. But the one thing they can agree upon is, no matter how different I am than the other other nut next to me, I, we're both against against Boehner because did, he's a normal person. Did he scrap? <laughs> I think the strength of their power is going to be um, measured by what Boehner does next. If Boehner can knock them out and can say, fine, you voted against me, there go your committee assignments, there go your trips, there go, you know, whatever perks. If he can grab them now, you've minimized their power. But if he can't grab them now, they're going to be like an annoying little ant that's going to just kind of kind of bite you. And that's going to be a problem because Boehner needs to produce something. He needs to produce budgets. He needs to produce authorization bills. And he can't continue to be worried like he was in the 113th. A bunch about a bunch of rabble browsers who are spending way too much of his time. Alan Moore. I think we just have to be really careful generalizing about this group of 25 or the 218 who voted for Boehner. Some of them don't like him much and aren't going to be with him on a lot of things. And some of these 25 are going to, from time to time, support him. But it, it's he's never going to get a group that will follow him and do whatever he wants. When you try, you you do need some ability. To reward and punish, but it, but, but your ability to do that's pretty darn limited. We don't, we don't earmark much anymore, so the reward process is all screwed up. Um, and the punishment, if you don't, if if you if you take a cherished assignment away, 
you got to be careful because you, what you don't want is to create an enemy you can never bring back into, into the fold. Exactly. It's really complicated, and every single individual is a little bit different story. Congress for now. If I were the speaker, what I would do is, is not, not try and <clears throat> punish everybody because I think that then makes the, the, the speaker look like he's the problem. No. But rather, I would want to see, I would want to be sure that there was no committee of the Congress in which those guys had significant influence. Don't let too many of them get on any one committee. And if I had to take a committee assignment away from somebody or other to do that, uh, I would do it. But I, I, I think uh, you don't want to look. Uh, you don't the, want to be vindictive. No, you don't want to. You don't. You want, want, to, want to be vindictive, but you don't want to look vindictive. You don't want anybody to know you were vindictive. vindictive. You want them to suspect, <laughs> but not. But can't prove it. Provable. Exactly. Dan Lipner. Well, I, I disagree with that. We're looking for leadership for the, this caucus in the House in the House. Their leadership is actually in the Senate. And their numbers have grown by at least one. We're still seeing who, who else is there. But Joni Ernst, is, I suspect, is going to be part of the crazy wing of the party in the Senate. The Mike Lee, Ted Cruz. The Mike Lee, Ted Cruz. I actually carve out Rand Paul because I actually... Well, I disagree with him. I think he's principled by, by what he stands for, but he tends to get lumped in with the with that group. Well, he's moderated a little bit too. Yeah, and and, and from I've actually done a great deal, like followed both the, uh, Ron Paul and his son a great deal, and they're inter they're interesting politically, and they tend to be philosophically consistent. The Mike Lee, Ted Cruz, and and Joeing on what I believe Johnny Ernst will be, they are part of that crazy wing, and if they build a coalition across to the to the other chamber, then there's a problem. But we had our Denise Crap real quick. I don't think Joni Ernst is going to be that crazy. I, I think I, you're. I, I think you're, you're. I think we're going to find out. We'll no, find no, out. Yeah, I, I she, had, she will, just got seated today. But she yeah. got seated today, and I think it's going to be her military background that is going to moderate. I don't think you're going to see her do. Um, like Alan West was moderated for his military no. background. <laughs> let's, let's let's not condemn and conclude before the woman has served a day. In the in the uh, in the U.S. Senate, everything changes once you're elected. But, but let me staff, re you go rhetoric matters, Alan. Well, oh, but okay. It's, but it's not the only thing ever, and whatever bad, stupid thing. If that were true, we'd have almost no leaders of any kind. And 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 Rand Paul would have long since disappeared. He said plenty of stupid stuff, and he's maturing and changing. Right. And so yeah. are guys in yeah. the House. And, and and we'll see about Johnny. Well, let, let's talk. Let's so talk about the Senate. These let's talk about the Senate for a second because you, you know, first of all, one of the greatest shows in Washington, if you ever get a chance to watch on C-SPAN, is watching the swearing-in ceremonies with uh, Papa Joe Biden swearing in the senators for the 114th Congress. It, it's it's just it's just comical to watch them interact with children, spouses, and family members. It's a great great reality show, but the. Uh, we we have since seen Harry Reid be downgraded to minority leader. We've seen Mitch McConnell come up as majority leader, and we're starting to see a more coalesced Republican Party in the in the uh, Senate. We're also starting to see a lot more breakout on the Democratic Party as far as going further left, i.e., the followers of Senator Elizabeth Warren out of Massachusetts. We see the opposite happening in the Senate where. 
the the left is going to be the big problem for the minority and for Harry Reid. Is this a big problem for them? Let me start with you. You served in the Senate, um, both Democratic and Republican. You know, there's there's a strain of of hard over liberal thinking in the Senate. Um, she's one of the the the, the people with uh, who's who's got a little. Uh, excitement and enthusiasm behind her. I don't know whether it's got staying power or not, but in the Senate, anybody who's got that view wants to be the leader. None of these people are going to say, oh, yeah, Elizabeth, she's the one. She's been here for two whole years. I want to I get behind her. It, the, the, the egos in the Senate are are rather large across the board. And but, but we've always let me just stop you right there, real quick, Alan, because we've seen we've seen liberal left break out. There's always been a fringe of ultra liberal Democrats. You can go through Ted Tom Kennedy. You go to you can go yeah, to Tom Kennedy. Clark, Ted Kennedy. But they they never seem to have wanted to grasp the spotlight or the drive of the party that the way we're seeing right now. Well, I don't. <laughs> I don't think Ted Kennedy was a shrinking violet. He uh, he was a very effective senator because he he lived two lives. He he could he could talk the populist line with the best of them, and sometimes went overboard. I would argue, um, and he could also cut deals. He was there for a very long time, and his objective was. Let's let's improve things. Let's take what we can get. Let's cut a deal. Let's get something. And then, and occasionally he miscalculated and he lost some opportunities over the years. But he, but much more often he would get a little something <coughs> and he'd say, "Put that in the pocket. We'll be back next time around and we'll try for some more." But let me ask this question though. You know, Bob Hines. We look at Ted. You know, we bring up Ted Kennedy. Ted Kennedy's best friend in the Senate was Orrin Hatch, a Republican conservative out of Utah. Uh, we don't see that anymore. No, we don't. And it seems to me that the fringes. On both sides, the Republican fringe in the House, the Democratic fringe left in the Senate, could be those could be the catalyst for the continuation of gridlock. Is that inaccurate? I don't think so because one of the things that the fringe people do in the Senate and the Democrats in the Senate and the Republicans in the House is when they're when they're chopping at the bit, it makes it easier for the leaders to talk to some of their members who are a little bit wavering, but they don't want to go over there with those crazy people. And so it, it, it could make it easier for the leadership uh, to bring along members who are a little bit not quite with the leadership, but they certainly don't want to be tied in with these people over on the left and the right who seem to be causing trouble. Denise Krepp? I, I remember being... Um in negotiations with, with the Senate um, back in 2007, and I, this is going to be very similar to what's about to happen in 2015, a lot of senators were running for Congress. Or not, sorry, not even for Congress. They were running for president. Yeah, senators don't run. Oh, no. They yeah. run for God. Yes, yeah. they, run, they run for God. The difference is God doesn't think he's a senator. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and I, I think that's going to be a very interesting thing to watch. Let's see if some of the folks that have made more of the outlandish statements start moderating their statements because they are running, or let's see if they magnify those statements because they are running, and how is that going to impact um, 
you know, the bills that are moved this year. I mean, I realize it's a bunch of inside baseball, but that's what we're about to see but, as people start positioning themselves. But the bigger question we have right now, Dan Lipner, is can the <coughs> – excuse me – is in a, in a time where we saw in the 113th Congress where we saw uh, the president pretty much go hands off on Capitol Hill, is this now a reason for Obama to reinvigorate dialogue with the Capitol as opposed to taking a uh, hands-off approach? It'll be interesting to see what's happened, going to happen since the president has, has, as of today, officially issued his first veto threat on the key on the Keystone Pipeline, um, so it, it'll be interesting. That that could be seen as a well, first the White House reasserting itself, but also whether or not the Capitol chooses to reach back and says, "All right, we're gonna bar- let's see what we can do to bargain here," as opposed yeah. to do some sort of standoff. And we've we've had standoff politics between the parties since Obama's been in office. So there's an opportunity on both sides of Pennsylvania Avenue. The question is. Who's going to bargain? And I suspect the the, the, the weak hardline group that Alan talked about will flex their muscle, and both sides we will continue to see standoff politics. Alan Moore, um, I, I think that that uh, it's very hard to predict. Keystone Pipeline is an interesting one because it's going to shoot right out of the box. It's going to be a test of several things, not least of all Mitch McConnell's int- stated intention. To allow different kinds of amendments, and the Democrats are coming up with a bunch of amendments that, that are favorite items of theirs, and that will make make for some awkward votes uh, for Republicans. I'm sure that some Republicans will have their own share of, of awkward amendments. Um, we'll see what gets through the Senate. We'll see if there are uh, 60 votes for something out of the Senate, um, and and it will it will take the 60. Um, I think there's a decent chance they'll come up with 60 in the Senate, uh, work something out with the House. Um, and then the question is, okay, so the president has said he would veto. But when you, when you issue a veto threat, you don't say, I will veto any legislation that has the words Excel pipeline in it. He says, I will veto, I would veto this particular bill. Well, these bills are all going to get changed. That's where the, 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 the compromise inside the Senate the compromise across the Capitol with the House and discussions and potential compromise with the president. There could be an XL pipeline bill of some sort that involves the president uh, endorsement and that could get 60, 70 votes. I mean, this is such an interesting issue because because 70% of the American people knows, know enough about it to say, yeah, I'm for it. Now, that's a little scary because... Chances are they don't know that much about it, but 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 George W. Bush, Bill Clinton, and Warren Buffett they they get featured on these ads. They've all said positive things about the pipeline. Uh, the unions like it. Um, the environmentalists hate it. The economics of it are moving around with well, they're murky with lower, with lower, due to lower, lower oil, oil prices. But but uh, I, I, the, the, I think but but all I'm saying is. This is not just a symbolic let's vote down Obamacare one more time, even though we know that won't happen. This is something different because there is bipartisan support. How much and how much will get loaded on to to it and where the president might come in and discuss? I don't know. That's why we do this stuff. Denise Crap. 
And they're also worried about two nominations that they've got to push through, and that would be the Secretary of Defense and, and um, Justice. They've got to get those folks. They're in acting capacities right now, so everything relates to one another. I mean, it's not a vacuum of the Keystone pipeline. It's going to be, okay, if we do this with Keystone and we veto it, how is that going to impact the nominations? How is that going to impact the other pieces of legislation that we are going to try to push this year? I mean, it, it, it's already January, and we're going to be looking at budget soon. I mean, there's a lot of things in play right now. Bob Hines, look at it this way. The president wants to get some things done. He would like to have some sort of a record in the next couple of years where he's, you know, done some good things for the country, number one. Number two, McConnell wants to be a successful leader. He's, this is his opportunity. This is what's going to be his crown of his, of his career in the, in the Senate. So there are reasons that both sides can say, you know, if I can give a little bit over here and if I can get what I want over here, I'm going to try to do it. I think we have an opportunity. I don't know whether it will be grasped, but it is there. I, uh, Dan Lipner. I agree with you absolutely. The rhetoric that McConnell has been using since the election has been good. He has been very good and been, dare I say, almost statesmanlike, sure. uh, wor wor worthy of the position that, that yes. he is. Exactly. That, that being said, he's not the only voice there. And I, I'm still very curious to see what's going to happen. And. And I am I am I am less hopeful than you are based on everything else that I've seen from the, the other party rhetoric within the Republican side. Well, you gotta see. I'm Irish, so I'm an optimist. <laughs> but but let me let me go on to what what Denise said. As far as far as the 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 the, the Senate votes for the new Secretary of Defense and the new new Attorney General, I find it impossible possible to believe that Republicans are going to fight the Secretary of Defense. The, yeah. it, 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 it would be, at least to me, it seems to be a politically foolish fight. The AG, on the other hand, that's going to be an interesting fight because there actually is a Democratic win if that, that seat is fought and for the long-term policies of the Democratic Party. And if I were the Republicans, I wouldn't pick that fight either. But that's not to say that won't be that won't be fought over. They won't fight. No, those will. We tend to be give massive deference, particularly for the top echelon of of cabinet jobs, and that includes uh, those Most two jobs: the uh, Secretary of Defense, <laughs> Attorney General. It is really, really hard to <laughs> to knock somebody off. It's happened. John Tower got knocked off. But that was a bizarre personal behavior kind of thing, and I just don't see that that happening. Well, there will be plenty of other fights. Right, and I want to bring up that when we come back. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. You know, you hear us talk about Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's being the place to be. America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends, or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know, Shelley's is the place for private parties. Shelley's Backroom is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250. From cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, 
Shelly's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelly's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelly's can make accommodations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelly's Backroom, go to www.shellysbackroom.com slash private-party. Shelly's Backroom, the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also the place for private parties. Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We're live on Blog Talk Radio, as we are every Tuesday. We're talking about some of the big stories that we're going to see in 2015. Uh, you know, we, we talked about some of the congressional movements going on. Big question coming up is, in 2015, does anybody see President Obama's foreign policy improving at any aspect going <laughs> forward in 2015? Dan Lipner? I don't think President Obama's foreign policy has been bad, so I don't think so. Improving is plausible, absolutely. How do you improve on perfect? How do you, how do you improve on perfect, like Syria and ISIS and uh, of which wow. we, are, we are not responsible for either? And the energy independence that Obama has presided over makes our interest in the region significantly lesser. So, good job, Mr. President. Alan Moore, would you like to take this? Because I know you're just cringing right now. No, uh, I, I mean. It, we we have got just a, a a load of challenging issues, um, starting with with uh, President Putin in, in in Russia, and this this sort of caged animal, desperate guy, um, and we just we we aren't sure what his next move will be. He's hit his the economy is hit very very hard by. The, the 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 temporary decline in oil uh, in gas prices um, and uh, and he's and we've taken some sanctions against him because of the annexation of Crimea and it's starting to hurt and as it was often the case in Cuba we're the bad guy so he's more popular than ever at home partly because <laughs> because America and the West are taking actions against against his um, very aggressive foreign policy actions. I'm not being critical of, 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 of the president here. I don't know what to do about it. I don't know what to do about ISIS. I don't know what to do about, about Iraq. I don't know what to do about Afghanistan. I think we've made some significant mistakes in the way we withdrew, uh, uh, particularly from Iraq. We're, 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 we're coming out of Afghanistan in a different way, which won't leave us as exposed to a situation that might trigger something like uh, ISIS. Now, now Dan likes to think that that was a a, 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 a near perfect uh, set of uh, foreign policy decisions. I disagree. Um, but so much of this stuff, it, we're still 
dealing with a new world and trying to sort out, gosh, what do we do now? What do we do now? What do we do now? Most, most of the problems internationally that we are facing <coughs> were not caused by the policy of this of, the, of this country. Uh, they are things that have been presented to them, and they are very, very confounding problems. But with few exceptions, some exceptions, but few exceptions, they weren't caused by what we did, what the president did, what have you. And the question is, how do we handle them? Well, so far, I think he's been handling them well. He's he hasn't, you know. The trick here is don't don't turn into Teddy Roosevelt and and and, and start thrashing around. And he hasn't done that. And I I, I respect him for that. And and <clears throat> some of the things, some of the ways that I think you handle these situations is with subtlety. Subtlety is a hard thing to get political credit for, uh, which the president needs and has a hard time getting. Uh, and, 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 and well, this president isn't exactly subtle. I well, disagree. I, 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 yeah, I, I, I think that's the, one of the most amazing statements that we've come around this table in a long time. As, really? As, as far as foreign policy, I mean, if you've been following Iran recently, the reformist movement in Iran is actually quietly making headway, yeah. and so much so that the president of Iran is actually talking about doing a, a direct referendum to try and get around the hardliners to actually see the, the Iranian quasi-democracy, since the, the mullahs still have power there, and seeing what advancement that is. And part of, part of what makes that possible is that our silence on the Iranian government, allowing them to allow their government to function and reform in itself. Us being subtle and hands-off is, is arguably one of the reasons things are working. The, the American devil, as they would put it, isn't involved right now. Well, let me, let me take this opportunity right now. We've got 10 minutes in the segment left. I'm going around the table. Is When we look forward in 2015, what do you think is going to be the biggest story we're going to watch in 2015? Congressman, now. <laughs> run up to the presidential election. How so? You think it's going to be a free-for-all? Well, I think I think <clears throat> it it could be a walk in for Bush and for Clinton, but it may not be, and that's what's going to keep both of those races very interesting. Interesting, Bob Hines. What do you think is going to be the biggest story in 2015 that we'll watch politically? Well, I think, like Al, that the biggest thing is going to be. The maneuvering in both parties over the presidential candidates. I think that's almost it's almost a given. I mean, I suspect that the, well before we're into February, we will have more activity than we can be would be surprised in the next six weeks. There'll be more people moving around. You know, maybe not announcing, but they'll be doing things that will say, "I am getting ready." I'm trying to. I got my finger in the water. I got my foot in the water. I'm trying to see well, you know, if I should jump in. You know, Jeb Bush today just announced uh, the formation of a super PAC called Power, you know, or um, what is it, uh, uh, something to rise. Uh, Republicans are good, vote for us. You, okay, something <laughs> of that sort. But uh, well, you know, but it's clear, he, Bush, it's, it's clear that Mr. Bush is 
is doing everything <clears throat> except saying, I am running. One could say, Denise Krep, that Hillary Clinton's done the same thing. She's done everything, tap dance around it, but left the opportunity for her to back out very viable. She has, she has, but I, I, I think um, she needs to watch the governors. Um, they were, to use a word that was, uh, was tossed out earlier, subtle. There were several governors, both at the, within the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, that were making movements. And, and I'm not talking Who are the Democrats? Your, not talking about your Martin O'Malley's of the world. I'm talking about... Schweitzer, Webb, yep. are, are both running. O'Malley's going to run. Well, O'Malley, but uh, no, the governors. Oh, it, 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 no, right, but I'm saying you've got Inslee out of Washington State who's doing some very interesting things. You've got Ohio. Mm-hmm. You have New York. You have some other states where they are actively moving out, not waiting for the federal government, saying that I am the governor, I am a leader, and this is what I'm doing. So watch the governors. Wouldn't watch the Senate right now. It's the governors who are positioning themselves. Well, and you said an interesting thing about Inslee. <clears throat> I, I am very fond of Jay Inslee, and I have counseled him on several occasions, don't run for that. You will never, ever get elected. And every time he's made a dummy out of me. So this is a guy who you say, well, who's ever heard of Inslee? All that. Uh, I, I've watched his career, and he has pulled yeah. magic out of nothing over and over again. Bob Hines? Uh, I want to touch on something that, uh, that uh, my Denise. colleague Denise said. <laughs> What's interesting about Ohio is, number one, no Republican has ever won the presidency without winning Ohio. Without winning Ohio. Ohio has two excellent candidates for vice president. One is the governor, who is a very down-home guy, you know, a guy who takes out the garbage and that kind of stuff. He's, a, he's really good. He's got to he, he, he carry the state easily. He would be an interesting candidate. He would be a very good candidate. I don't know what he could be a good vice president. The other one would be a brilliant vice president for the presidential nominee, the senator, Mr. Portman, who knows more about government than almost anybody else in the Senate. Interesting. He's done everything, and he is a very able guy, and he would be a marvelous choice if Mr. Bush is the candidate. That would be, that would be such a good and talented twosome I cannot imagine. Alan Moore. Yeah, so this whole conversation about the presidential campaign is interesting. Uh, I don't accept, though, the basic premise that that's going to be the main story. What's the big story in your eyes? I think how this Congress functions, how this new Republican Congress functions with this president. Um, uh, This 2016 presidential campaign, it'll be percolating around, and we'll pay attention to it, and it'll be curious, and people will say dumb stuff, and gather money and start committees and PACs and stuff like that. But I think the main story is going to be is is the government, which has been so dysfunctional, particularly the last two years, um, uh, going to be able to do more in cooperation with the president. I'm hopeful. I'm, 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 uh, I'm not optimistic as much as I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm not pessimistic. Um, and uh, I think that's going to be the big, the big question for this year. Dan Lipner, you agree? I'm actually I'm going to agree and and double down on Alan's statement. I think the the, uh, the we are going to learn that the big story for 2015 is that the Republican Congress, in spite <coughs> of the best efforts of Boehner and McConnell, are going to prove that they are 
utterly incapable of governing. Wow. <laughs> Interesting. Um, you win. Yeah. I'm, wow. I have, I, I'm reminded as he talks about that, Mr. Optimist, Mr. Pessimist over here, about about his predictions for the Senate races uh, just a few months ago. So In, yeah, I'll good just, point. I'll, we'll put him into context where he thought, I think that he had the, the Democrats winning 52, if I remember correctly. But anyway. But that's, well, that's I just hope, fact. I hope his predictions on the, uh, on the Congress are equally will, as accurate. Will, yeah, there yeah, we go. around the table it, it agreed with me that we weren't losing of the, the Senate seat in Colorado. So. Be careful on who you. Okay, okay, you got one out of fifty. Yeah. Good job. No, no, every everyone at the table agreed with me on that one, and as did we agreed on Landrew as well. That's so, true. Uh, true. With the exception of Denise, I believe Denise thought she was in trouble. Uh, well, with that, she was in trouble. Some of us predicted she was done. She gone. was done. She was Early done on. back before. You, yeah. So you, it's it's fine for you to have opinions, but you don't get to make up your own set of facts. Oh, here we go. Everyone agreed on you. All right. All right. All right. All right. That's. I agree on you, Okay, Alan. That's okay. We, with that I being said, we okay. That being said, it's now my favorite part of the show. It's it's. Uh, <laughs> tell me a story. We talk about the latest news gossip and what we're hearing inside the Beltway, outside of the Beltway, Congressman. Al, tell me a story. Well, the, the interesting thing is that <clears throat> I didn't come up with Jay Inslee as a possible presidential candidate, and uh, and you did. Mm-hmm. And I think that's fascinating for the reasons I explained earlier. So I would just say keep an eye on Washington on Jay Inslee. State and Jay Inslee. Interesting. Bob Hines. I will repeat what I said earlier um, just to make point. I think that Ohio is going to be more interesting than any other state in the union because it's going to have two candidates who are who are likely to be someone who the the presidential nominee of the Republican Party will choose because they've got to win Ohio and they've got two excellent good people in Ohio, the governor and this and the uh, senator, either one of which could carry the state easily. And Ohio has to be won by the Republicans if they're going to win the presidential campaign. Denise Krepp, tell me a story. All right. I'll double down on Inslee. The reason I, I, I mentioned him is that there is some very interesting activity going on right now dealing with fracking and the movement of oil uh, by rail. Governors are doing different things. New York is doing one thing. California is doing something else. But Washington State, it's been very interesting to watch. He's doing it quietly. And he's doing it without litigation, which is happening in, in New York and California. If he can show leadership and he can show change without litigation, he's a very interesting candidate to watch. Interesting. Alan Moore, tell me a story. Yeah, kind of a reflection today. Uh, we, we closed another chapter. Probably, perhaps we haven't closed the book, but on the very sad unraveling of the uh, once, once promising political life of of Bob McConnell, of, of former governor uh, Bob McConnell, McConnell of, of Virginia, who today uh, is breathing uh, at least to, at some level a sigh of relief over over being sentenced to only two years in prison for his conviction for uh, in effect influence peddling. Right. We not only watched the unraveling of his political career, we <laughs> watched in, in excruciating detail the unraveling of a marriage 
and the unraveling of a family yeah. that of, of a couple and five children, and there's lots of sadness to go around. Yeah. But this man and his wife and his grown children, to a lesser degree, did some really stupid things in a legal environment, which is horrendously flawed, and it's just a sort of a, of yeah. a sad day. It is. It is. Dan Lipner, tell me a story real quick. Uh, I was going to talk about the NSA, but since we didn't talk about the great loss uh, the first year of former Governor uh, Mario We're going to talk Cuomo. about that in a second. Nope. We're going to get to that. Wait, okay. story? Well, no, no, because we're, we're going to, I'm going to talk about that at the end. Oh, well, right. okay. Well, I, when uh, Mario Cuomo passed, I, passed away, uh, a bunch of outlets re-aired and relisted his 1984 convention speech. Oh. And is truly one of the great moments in democratic politics and represented what, and as I said this on my Facebook page, what liberals and progressives <laughs> can and should still stand for. And if we still spoke like that, maybe working class folks in the yay, Midwest yay, and in the yay. South would still be voting Democrat. Okay. That is a great loss. And yeah, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about that in a second. Hold on. Hold All on right. for that. Uh, my story is. Keep an eye on the newly elected congresswoman out of the 21st District of New York, Elise Stefanik. She's the youngest member of Congress, elected at 29, now 30. She played, she cast her first congressional vote as a member of Congress for Boehner as Speaker. She is going to be the new face of the Republican Party going forward. She's young. She's slightly moderate just a little bit right of moderate, but she's got a young voice and a young take that if the Republican National Committee were smart, they would listen to her as the youth voice in the Republican Party going forward. I'm a huge, huge fan of Elise Stefanik. Keep your eyes on her. With that, uh, Dan kind of brought it up a little bit, but I did want to close out the show and uh, talk a little bit about the passing of former New York Governor Mario Cuomo, uh, the father of the current governor of New York and also the father of uh, CNN uh, journalist uh, in the morning. But <laughs> I grew up with family from New York watching Mario Cuomo from a moderate Republican standpoint. My mom was a big fan of Cuomo's. My family's been a big fan of Cuomo's from the Democratic side of the family. He really was, if you didn't agree with his politics, he was the consummate professional politician. He was a statesman and a true leader of his party and a truly good leader at a time where New York needed it, even though he was a Democrat. He did a great job as governor of New York, did a lot of good things, and was really a staple in the political scene for the Democrats for many, many years. Uh, our thoughts and our prayers go out to the Cuomo family That's, and, and, and the, the, the citizens in the constituency in New York State. It is something that we will not see another Mario Cuomo, I don't think, again. Uh, he was unique. He was one of a kind, and we lost a good one in that one. And as a Republican, I can say that. Congressman Al, you worked with him in the past a little bit. I didn't work with him at all. Uh <clears throat> never met him. I, I agree with everything you said, however. Right, right. Bob Hines? I feel the same way. As, you know, good government and a good leadership and a strong leadership is what every party wants their leaders to be. 
he was all of that. And you know, you know, you, you know something. The one thing I always noticed about about Mario Cuomo was he had that delicate balance of populist politics, but also maintain control as the title of party leader in the state of New York. He really did a good job about cleaning up the political machine and making it effective in New York. Yeah, Congressman well, and, Al, and 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 as a spokesman. I think the Democratic Party hasn't had a spokesman of his quality except for Bill Clinton before or since in my lifetime. And uh, you go back to FDR uh, as far as the Democrats are concerned. Obviously, Ronald Reagan on the Republican side and so forth. But he, he you know, we, we need people who can articulate our policies in ways that the middle class people can understand. And he spoke to the middle class, as did Bill Clinton and we should learn from that. And, and, you know, the thing about Mario Cuomo is, uh, you know, this is a governor who did a lot of good things in the state of New York, actually worked across the aisle, worked with Republicans in the state legislature in Albany, and got a lot of good things done. <coughs> Excuse me. And I go back, you know, Dan brought up his 1984 uh, convention speech. And you look at that, and you want to talk about not only a truly effective message for progressives, but just as a political speech, I mean, captivated everybody's attention that day, back in a day where all the networks covered every minute of the convention. There was a huge, huge viewing that he had, and he affected a lot of people up in his up in his neck of the woods. So, again, our thoughts go out to the Cuomo family and to the folks in New York. With that, though, uh, on behalf of Congressman Al Swift, Bob Hines, Denise Krep, Alan Moore, Dan Littner, I am your moderator, Justin Russell. We will be back next week to talk about all things political on the best political talk show you've never heard of, Backroom Politics Live, from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Bob? The place to be. Absolutely. We'll see you next Tuesday. You can follow us on the web, backroompolitics.org. You can follow us on Twitter, at backroompolitics, or email me, justin at backroompolitics.org. Have a great week, America. Bye-bye.